Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. This is Lori McGraw, and we are speaking today on Inspiring Women with Afsana Nayamola. Now, Afsana has been in Silicon Valley. She's a Silicon Valley-based global technology and healthcare executive. She's got over 30 years of corporate experience in both um, investment banking, advising, innovation. Um, she today is the managing partner of XEM Partners, which is a corporate advisory and investment banking firm. She also is the executive in residence for Plug and Play Tech Center, which is the largest innovation advisory firm working with accelerators for early stage VC and startups. She has, in her 30 years, she's executed over 150 M&A transactions in 20 countries. She's raised over $12 billion of capital in all the companies that she's worked with. And she's also the author of HIT Greatest Hit, which is a widely read and respected uh, newsletter that she puts out monthly, the latest one which was quite excellent, Afsana, was how robots can create a world of abundance in healthcare. And Afsana, I am delighted to be speaking with you today. Thank you. Well, let's get started on inspiring women. So Afsana, you know, I always start the podcast sort of talking about you've got so much experience. You've worked with so many companies across the healthcare space. Why don't you just tell us what you're doing right now? What does your day-to-day look like with the different responsibilities you have? So I call myself recovering investment banker. <laughs> you know, I'm not a full-time investment banker. I have a portfolio of careers today. Obviously, I still do my investment banking. I have a stable of large private equity firms as well as some large uh, healthcare companies that when they are evaluating acquisitions or partnerships, uh, I work with them, I advise them. And, you know, I bring them lots of ideas from the early stage companies. I know I kind of see myself as a, what I call a knowledge transfer engine, bringing the world of startups to larger companies that have matured in their growth trajectory. And then I bring obviously the view and the discipline of the larger companies to the startups. So that's kind of one thing I do. I, as you said, I'm a publisher of uh, HIT Greatest Hits. That's kind of my intellectual outlet. Um, I try to present really the Silicon Valley view to the rest of the world. Uh, my readers, you know, I have readers globally as well as in the US. Uh, so that's the second thing I do. And as I said, I work with startups. I mentor startups. I'm an angel investor myself. Um, at any given time, I have about three or four companies that I take under my wing. And uh, I try not to get involved in their fundraise because I don't want them to want me for the fundraising. I really want them to want me for go-to-market strategy, uh, really 
showing them what's a viable business model, what, what's not, and then have them organically raise money because of how I shaped their story. I'm really a storyteller. Investment banking is all about telling the story of a company. And uh, the last thing I do is I sit on private and public boards. I try to uh, engage with organizations that I can you know, bring my assets to the table. I don't want that, that to be, oh, you know, we're looking for a female board member, so please join us so we can meet our quota. I try to stay away from those situations. So that's, I have a portfolio of careers. I would also say you're probably one of the more well-connected people across the healthcare space. And I want to talk a little bit about that. So beyond being a recovering investment banker, you might, I would describe you perhaps as um, chronically curious. I mean, that's how we first met on a him showroom floor of 30,000 people and just struck up a fantastic conversation. It was just so impressive that after so many years, you'd be so for you to be so deeply curious about what I was particularly working on um, on that day. So let's just talk about how you got to this place of being so well-connected across healthcare, working with all these different um, companies at a very senior level. Maybe if you could just give us a little bit of that history of Sana. Sure. You know, I started on Wall Street in the 80s. I kind of, you know, fell into Wall Street uh, just because, the, you know, I'm an immigrant. I'm an, I'm from Iran. Those days, you know, it was right after the hostage crisis. Nobody was giving jobs to Iranians, and I was lucky that I got uh, a job offer from a, you know, a, a bank that is not part of J.P. Morgan. It used to be called for Chicago. That's how I got. I got into Wall Street by sheer accident. But I, luckily, with an MBA under my belt, I quickly, it was natural for me. It was like, oh, my God, it's my only job, but I'm really good at it. So from early on, I uh, did a lot of very creative uh, financing in the capital markets. And then I fell in, after a couple of years, I fell into technology, horizontal technology. So, you know, I started covering those days, what used to be IBM, digital computer, Compaq, you know, the early Microsoft, Google and Facebook were not born at, at that time. And then there was one dinner. I had a three hour dinner with a woman I knew at a very, very large uh, healthcare company. And this was around the high tech act. And she said to me, what are you doing in tech? You should leave tech and join healthcare. And you should really look into this high-tech act. And high-tech act, for those who do not know what it is, it was when government was literally cutting checks to doctors to embrace electronic medical records. It was the first phase of electronification of healthcare industry. So I went back and typical Afsana, I read, 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 read. I'm like, oh my God. She's absolutely right. This business is going to explode. This industry is going to explode. So I quickly, you know, shifted my focus to healthcare. And again, typical Afsana, I don't go gradually. I went and actually wrote a 70-page white paper on what can happen to healthcare. And that was 2010. And this 70-page paper got huge, huge coverage huge coverage, CNBC, uh, lots of other people coded it. And there was like a graph in that white paper that showed the stats of healthcare technology that High Tech Act is gonna create. 
And that kind of branded me in healthcare. And a lot of people came and solicited my advice. So I was like, oh, wow, you know, this was amazing. And then I started to, uh, you know, do fundraising, M&A transaction. And, you know, the amazing part of being an investment banker is you work with so many CEOs and boards, some good, some bad, some average, but you begin to see pattern recognition because you, you know, you're dealing with so many, you know, I've dealt with thousands of healthcare companies by now in 15 years, 20 years of being in the industry. So that's really how I kind of build the answer to a question, build my network is through just doing deals, talking to a lot of people, and, uh, you know, being in a position to, you know, over time, being an opinion opinion leader of where I think the industry is going to go. Well, and it goes back to that being very curious and diving in. So that seems to be, you know, your um, your secret power, if you will, in terms of really trying to understand that and talk about being um, omnipotent and, you know, with the high tech act, because certainly we have seen um, amazing new companies be born over the last decade plus um, in healthcare. And it all did start with that, um, that particular act. But what about right now? I mean, we saw some of the largest investments in digital health in particular, um, over the past two years, COVID years, um, you know, uh, uh, $19 billion only to be, to be surpassed by over $20 billion um, in the last year. Where are we in that bubble? Do you think it's a bubble right now in digital health in particular, or what are, what are you seeing um, based on, you know, current state of investing today? So, so one thing to know about healthcare, obviously, the largest sector of our economy, $4 trillion is that it has always been decoupled from economic cycles. Healthcare does not move up and down with the economy because it's not a discretionary part of our economy. That's the first thing to know. The second thing I would like to note here is the private market valuations, for the most part, always have exceeded public market valuation when there is a downturn in the public market. Why? Because the amount of money available in the pockets of private equity firms and venture funds are literally in the trillions globally. That money has to be put to work. And good deals are chased by many, many, many people. So um, just to put it in perspective, in 2021, there were 3,000 uh, companies that were funded in digital health and 574 mergers and acquisitions were executed in 2021. That amount uh, is, uh, you know, uh, Q on Q, we are down about maybe 30%. Valuations are down a little bit. So yes, you know, it's catching up. Uh, I don't really, I don't think, this has ever been a bubble necessarily just because our industry is very sick and needs a lot of help and a lot of advancements. Yes, people, you know, companies have gone bankrupt. Um, but if you look at companies that don't make it in healthcare versus other industries like fintech and, uh, you know, horizontal software, we actually have a lower um, rate of failure. So, I don't know whether I will ever call it a bubble, but it's a, certainly a robust investment uh, 
environment. However, I believe because of what's happening, you know, over a three and a half dollars in the US alone has been lost in wealth. Um, you know, markets are down 25, 30%, depending on what indices you look at. So that is going to catch up. And I think there will be some tampering of funding, but I think we're going to have a robust M&A environment. Okay. I've also seen just in terms of, you know, my experience working with many, many innovators, um, investors, funders, as well as entrepreneurs, that just the level of sophistication in terms of what people understand about the markets and how they need to, um, you know, address certain issues for their companies is become quite a bit more sophisticated. I think that's natural um, when you have the level of investment and innovation that's going on. What do you see today that is required for young entrepreneurial companies, you work with so many of them to be successful. And how do you, you know, just working with um, the plug and play tech center, you know, how do those types of incubators and accelerators help support um, successful companies? Right. So I'll, I'll answer the second half first. So, you know, people like plug and play and organizations like them are really, really good because they are you know, Plug and Play has 35 offices around the world, 15 different verticals, several hundred corporate members. So corporate members pay a lot of money to Plug and Play to have, you know, exposure to the ecosystem of startups globally. They have like five centers in China, for example, alone. They even have a center in Saudi Arabia now. Uh, so, um, you know, to, to have a forum whereby you bring corporate members and who will tell plug and play hey these are my pain points and then plug and play goes and matches what those pain points are to the startup community and bringing these two parties together i think that's incredibly successful model because uh you know it accelerates uh the growth of the startup it uh but you know it can also quickly weed out startups that are not you know, don't have corporate demand, if you will. So that's, uh, you know, that's the model uh, that I see. Um, as far as what you need to be successful, I think one of the biggest, you know, watching some of the failures in healthcare, the, I will say a couple of things. Uh, the companies that have not been successful or have utterly failed and closed shop is they were going to do too much, too fast. And they raised a lot of money and without really understanding what the business model is going to be. And the, what they were trying to do was really boil the ocean. And um, that is not going to work in healthcare. You can boil the ocean eventually uh, with after, you know, series D and E or going public, but don't boil the ocean. Go, don't go and raise you know, $75 million series A and try to boil the ocean and, you know, be many things to many people. So that's the first thing. Just, I think, you know, slowly, slowly we go far. Try to solve one problem and one problem only. And I think that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is for sure have technical people on your staff. If the founder or CEO is not technical, um, you know, he or she should better or have a co-founder uh, or early employee that is highly technical because that 
goes a long way in this very competitive market. And technical could mean different things. A better hardware engineer, better AI, ML modeler, better software engineer, architect. Um, and the third thing uh, I, I would say is don't be too stingy raising money and don't, don't have much largesse when people are throwing money at you. Don't take it necessarily if you don't need it because that's always been, you know, a series A company should not be having, you know, Christmas parties that are, you know, gonna cost $30,000, which I've seen in this, in this part of the world. So those are the three things I, I, I think, solving a single problem, having technical people on your staff and raise just enough money to get you over the hump for the first one or two product, product iteration that you have. Yeah, pragmatic approach to use of use of capital is um, just seems like fantastic advice. Well, let me, this is inspiring women. I want to talk about the women and where are all the women? <laughs> so, you know, for all of this, um, you know, a great opportunity and financial so that it's not a bubble is kind of encouraging to hear. I like the perspective that you gave in terms of, you know, its relationship to economic cycles or not. But the statistics for female founders, for female CEOs are not not great. You know, we have very little of this amazing amount of funding that are going to um, female founders and CEOs. So why is this? Are there, is there not enough women in the innovation space? Or, or is it that the, um, the, why are the checks not large enough? What are you seeing? And then what do you think should be being done about it? You know, I, I think about this a lot, a lot, because I was, I felt like I took a lot of arrows on my chest on behalf of women on Wall Street. You know, I when I first started my career in a very, very high power, you know, I kind of fell into a very high power division that had, you know, very few women. And I think about this a lot. And I really, you know, I'm, I'm, what I'm going to say is probably not what you're expecting to hear. I think performance should count the most. I'm not in the, of the school that says, oh, you know, this is a female founder. We've got to find a way to fund her, however bad or good the business model is. You know, I, I do not subscribe to that opinion. However, and I've seen, by the way, I've seen some bad businesses being funded just because the VC wanted to show in, in the, you know, report card that they have back to women. I've seen women get promoted in the VC community and to partner at the age of 27, and they had no business being a partner at the age of 27. So we, we can overdo this. I think A, performance. B, I think uh, women like me and others like me have to make it a mission in their life to help other women. I think, you know, if I want to mentor a company, I, all else being equal, I will always go to the female uh, founders rather than not. Uh, I, you know, we need to help them and lift them the right way, not just because of the gender. Now, is there still, you know, bias or unbiased discrimination in the Silicon Valley uh, area? Absolutely. This is one of the worst places. This is, you know, I come from New York. I worked in Japan. I worked in. UK, I worked in France and Germany. This is one of the worst areas I have seen. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with just in being, you know, all engineers and, you know, 
to this day, unfortunately, majority of engineers are, are male and they're just much more comfortable with each other. And I think that is changing. The progress is gonna be extremely slow, but persistence is the name of the game and performance is the name of the game. Those two Ps, be persistent and perform, you know, focus on your performance. We eventually, you know, are, are gonna are gonna break. And it's not, you know, it's not so much glass ceiling stuff anymore. Uh, you know, larger companies here are very um, aware of uh, trying to, you know, make sure that elevate women who deserve them uh, deserve to be elevated. It's it's more. Um, having these boys club be comfortable having females also you know pulling up a chair to the table what about that Afsana? So, so let's talk about silicon valley so you're in silicon valley you love silicon valley you're you're a big proponent for it so uh, but it's also it, quite frankly it's known as a big boys club so so what what do you see in silicon valley what is the culture there and um what do you like about it and then how can women you know um either get into that club or make it on their own i just what is your perspective there i think that your uh focus on performance um um, absolutely makes sense. I mean, you know, nobody should get a free pass, and I, I would absolutely agree with that. Yet there still are obstacles in the way that are not just performance related in terms of what the numbers are telling us. Right. I think women looking after women should be the key here. So there are, you know, there are now 100% female-run VCs that are only or trying. Not, I don't know whether exclusively, but trying to predominantly fund businesses that are, are run by women. So women looking after women is really, really important. Let's do the job ourselves rather than, you know, going with our tin can and asking for help from, from the male uh, counterparts. That's the first thing I want to say. I have been coming to Silicon Valley every couple of months uh, for 25 years. And six years ago, I permanently moved here. And I thought I knew everything there was to know about Silicon Valley because I was coming here for over a quarter of a century, you know? Mm -hmm. And boy, was I wrong. You know, they, people here wanted to have a zip code of Silicon Valley to bring you under the tent. And, even with all this virtual stuff. And yes, we have lost some people. And yes, some companies have gone fully virtual like Salesforce. I still think Silicon Valley is like Madagascar. You know, it has its own air and its own plantation. Mm -hmm. And uh, unless you're here and press flush with people, the, the doers, the shakers, um, I just don't think you're going to be taken seriously. That's just, that's the way it is. And we will see. We will see whether this virtual uh, environment we have had for the past two years is going to change that. I haven't seen it much. It has changed some of it, but so that's the first thing. There's something about the air here. You know, when you're sitting and having coffee uh, on University Avenue in Palo Alto, which I do often, and you know, to my right there is this VC talking about the latest genomic sequencing machine and to my left is another VC with a startup talking about you know lithium bat batteries uh it's just that you cannot replicate that in a zoom call and in, in a virtual environment 
uh, as far as you know, what women can do is, um, you know, yes, we we keep talking about STEM, STEM. You know, uh, every university has this big push about more women in the STEM program, and that is helping. You know, producing more engineers, uh, female engineers into the system. But I also, you know, what I also feel is STEM is not the 100% cure. I think we need well-rounded uh, female leaders in humanities. Uh, like, I love the fact that Facebook hires anthropologists. I love it. And they have very good reasons why they're hiring anthropologists. So not everybody has to be a coder to do well in Silicon Valley. So being in Silicon Valley um, make, makes a difference and women need to help other women. What do you, I mean, with all the entrepreneurs and innovation that is in Silicon Valley and the networks of people that are largely male, what's the responsibility there? And do you see anything changing? Are there efforts being made, um, you know, within those networks to either bring women along um, or do you think it's really on the, you know, women like you who are, who need to make the changes to break in, if you will, because again, the numbers are just staggering. I mean, 2.3% of the venture funding in the past year going, going to women, those numbers are just largely off given all of the value creation that opportunities that are out there. Yeah, I, I, again, I will stress that women looking after women is the way to go, to be honest. I, I think there are certain venture funds, which I will not name, that are doing their best to promote women and have done a fabulous job promoting women that deserve to get promoted. And then, you know, then there are some other ones that are, you know, promoting 27 year olds to partner. And when you talk to that person, she has, she's clueless about what I'm talking about because she has been around only for two years, right? Mm -hmm. But then she did some big investment that return 1000% and therefore she now deserves to be a partner. So there, there are, there is definitely awareness and there are some people that are, you know, for sure trying to hire more women and it's not so much hiring, it's also mentoring, right? It's the mentoring part and having them achieve quality education on the job and that mentoring part to me is really underestimated. Just because I can hire 10 engineers out of Stanford uh, CS school doesn't mean anything. How much time am I willing to put into these people to really bring them and lift them up rather than just unleash them uh, into the field and go and you know learn on your own, which is really what I what happened to me on Wall Street. You know, I really, with the exception of a couple of years here and there, I really never had a mentor. I, you know, I'm self-learned, if you will. And I think that that mentoring is really important. Um, is it at a level I like to see? No. Is it better than a couple of years ago? Absolutely. That is terrific. And I, and I, so many of the women, you know, innovators, entrepreneurs, and executives that I speak to, they, they talk about mentoring in a very um, serious way. Well, Sana, this is such a great conversation. I'm curious, you know, after 30 years in this industry, in the past six or so, sort of like really deeply breathing that um, Silicon Valley air, what's keeping you motivated and energized about the healthcare tech space that you're in today? Um, I think that's a great question. You know, I was thinking about it. Yeah, I do like working and mentoring. 
startups. Yes, I do like working with larger healthcare companies and exposing them to the kind of the valley air, if you will. But the most important thing that energizes me is this industry is bottomless pit when it comes to learning. Like I learn every day. My my mind is exercised every day. Right now, you know, I'm very, you know, I'm getting more and more scientifically focused. Uh, you know, before for many, many years I was, you know, working on business models, you know, all remote patient monitoring is pretty much the same technology. What's the best business model and go-to-market strategies? I went right now I'm I'm really steeped into genomics and drug discovery and how AI and algorithms and modeling uh, can kind of infusing the chemicals of pharma and infusing it with the AI machine learning and what kind of drugs can we discover? Uh, so the scientific part of the industry is really energizing to me. Well, and lots of people can read more about it in terms of how you bring together those thoughts and those industry perspectives in your monthly HIT Greatest Hits. Afsana, this has been a great conversation. As we close out, any last um, uh, words of advice for other aspiring women um, who are out there? Um, I would say, don't mold yourself to meet a given environment requirement at the price of losing yourself. I have seen that a lot, that people keep changing and refining themselves so they can be a better fit in, inside an organization or better liked or better respected. All of that is necessary, but I've also seen women really losing their their, their sense of self with a uppercase S because they keep molding themselves to fit and just be yourself, be your authentic self and focus on learning and focus on collegiality and collaboration with colleagues without losing the sense of your inner self. Well, I think that is fantastic advice and we'll close out on that. This has been an excellent Inspiring Women conversation. I have been speaking with Afsana Nayamola and Afsana, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.